minister to all these, our brothers and sisters, and to bless our study this morning. You'll bow your heads with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, to come before you, and to bring our petitions to you. And also, Father, to bring our sacrifice of gratitude to you for the blessings and for the trials that you give us. We ask that you will minister to each person whose pain is consistent and daily, that you'll give them relief, that you will heal these brothers and sisters. We thank you for the trials that you've placed upon each of us in our own turn. And we ask that you will continue to give us the spirit of gratitude for those trials, knowing that our trials are for the good of the whole body and that we're suffering with Christ for the glory of his kingdom. We ask now that you will bless our study this morning. You'll open our eyes and ears to see that our judgment is part of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we, we need to be grateful for all that you've done for us and for all that you've given us to do in your service, the trials and the blessings. We ask it all in Jesus' name, and we give you thanks. Amen. All right. This is a quote out of the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. That's why I picked it for the title of the study this morning. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. That's talking about you and me. That is a prophecy about you and me. And, of course, the light that shines upon us is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And since you and I are Jesus of Nazareth, whom the world persecutes, we are the light of the world. It's just amazing that we can be what Christ is. But those are his words, not mine. I am the light of the world, he says, speaking of himself. Then he turns right around and says, you are the light of the world. As they've done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, they've done it to me. I am Jesus from Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So these are prophecies about us and our Lord. Now, here are the verses that we'll be studying today, verses 1 through 4, chapter 9. And we're going to go back and relate them to the previous chapter. But here's how it starts out. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted her in the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Then he breaks into this. The people that walked in darkness have seen great light. They that dwell in the shadow of death upon them has the light shine. You have multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Now, that's a mistranslation there, as I think we'll see uh, as we do our study today. Should should read, you have increased the nation and the joy. The, they joy before you according to the joy in the harvest as a, uh, as men, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. All reasons for great joy. So there's a mistranslation there, and I think we'll see it. But before we continue the study of our 
judgment here at the beginning of Isaiah 9. We must repeat the last two verses of chapter 8 to remind us of the darkness and the dimness that we'll be discussing in this first verse of chapter 9. Now here's the last two verses of the previous chapter to give us some context. Speaking of, all, as always, of you and me, Jesus Christ in us, they shall pass uh, through it uh, hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Now that's the dimness that was being referred to in the first verse of chapter 9. Now what we're being told is that at the appointed time, each of us, uh, for each of us, our heads in peaceful life on this earth will begin to fall apart. Because as God's elect, our judgment must begin for us in this age. The words hardly bestead are translated from the Hebrew word kasha, which means stiff-necked and stubborn, and we're made to become victims of spiritual famine and a life of darkness and ignorance. God brings this upon us. He shows us that we're living in darkness, yet we stubbornly dig in our heels rather than accept the inevitable death of our old man and the total destruction of his entire kingdom. As our judgment intensifies... The heat gets hotter and hotter, and the waves of the sea begin to get higher and higher. In time, we're brought to our wit's end. At this point, every weight and the sin which so easily besets us is beginning to be purged from our lives. And it just does not seem natural or necessary to be that spotlessly cleansed of our sins. The truth is, we see ourselves as pretty good compared to most people. And we see the Lord as being a little unrealistic and much too demanding of us. We know we have certain sins we need to eliminate from our lives, but we simply can't do it. And the starvation, spiritual starvation, and the mental anguish that comes with the spiritual darkness we're in at, the, at this time seems to be way beyond what we, are, what we see as befitting our little sins and the weight that so easily besets us. Now that's taken out of uh, Hebrews 12.1, wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. You know, Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11, which is that chapter they call the faith chapter. It has so many witnesses of people who had faith in the Old Testament. Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience, the race that is set before us. At, at, at this point, when we're being punished for our sins, it seems that our fiery trials are just strangely severe and simply more than we can bear, which is what Peter tells us. You love think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. The reason we're told not to think of our fiery trials as strange is because that's exactly what we all just naturally do. And when we do, we look upward and curse our God. And we look down to the earth and see trouble and darkness. It's, it's so dark and so foreboding that we're fearful and we gnaw our tongues for pain. 
we closed our last study last week with the New Testament version of uh, Isaiah 8, 21 and 22, which is Revelation 16, 8 through 11. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Just like Isaiah tells us we will do. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the name of God because of the pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. I, I remember discussing this with a concordant uh, minister, because we were both, of course, had absolutely, at that time, had absolutely no spiritual insights. And we were both just musing about how it's possible to be scorched with fire from the sun and be in darkness at the same time. <laughs> we, we had no un spiritual understanding. Now, you know, my, while in my total darkness, I wondered how that was possible. But when I came to see things spiritually, it was no problem at all for me to see clearly how fiery trials of our spiritual blindness can scorch us with fire while we're still in that dark kingdom. Of course, it's all by Christ's design. King David explains to us what God is doing in our lives in this age. And he tells us we're born into a body which is designed to bring upon itself God's wrath and judgment. And now this is Psalms 90, verses <clears throat> 3 through 7. You, you turn man to destruction. And then you say, return you children of men. Why does God do that to us? For a thousand years in your sight are, as, are but as yesterday when it is past. And as a watch in the night, you carry them away with the flood, they are as asleep. In the morning, they are like grass, which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up, and in the evening, it's cut down and withers. For we are consumed by your anger, and by your wrath, we are troubled. All because you made us, led us to destruction. You turn men to destruction, and then you say, Return, you children of men. It just doesn't seem fair to us. It doesn't seem right to us, to our natural man. And we think that we have some right or reason that we can question God. God's given us an evil experience in this life. He doesn't hide that from us. He did so for the specific purpose of humbling us. He doesn't hide that from us. And that's what he tells us right in, here in Ecclesiastes 1.13. I applied my heart to inquiring and exploring by wisdom concerning all that is done under the heavens. It's an experience of evil. Elohim has given to the sons of humanity to humble them by it. And John 3.36 tells us the same thing. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not on the Son, which is the way we're all born. We don't know anything about Christ when we come out of our mother's womb. He that believes not on the Son, believes not the Son, not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Those are both present tense statements with a continuing uh, message to them. You remain that way until God brings us out of it. Isaiah reiterates this truth in words which cannot be dismissed or denied by any intellectually honest-minded man. Isaiah 63, verse 7. Same, same thing, 17, the same thing that uh, King David said. 
Lord, why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake the tribes of your inheritance. The people of your holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We are yours. They never bear, you never bear rule over them. They were not called by your name. Now, they're not called by your name implies that we have, why have you given dominion over your people over to those who are not yours? Why have you placed such a burden upon me which I cannot bear? In spiritual terms, we're asking, why have you made me this way? Romans 9, 19, and 20 pose that very question. You will say unto me, why does he find fault? Or who can resist his will? You know, we ask, we ask, and we all do it. We all do it. If he made us err from his ways, why on earth is he punishing us for what he made us do? And what's the biblical answer to that inevitable natural question? No, but O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me this way? Now, Isaiah had read Psalms and Ecclesiastes and was very familiar with these truths. He knew that our lives and the destiny of his country, physical Israel, were all predestined to be lived out after the counsel of his own will. Later in our studies, we'll come to this verse which Paul quotes there in Romans 9. This is Isaiah 45, 9, right after, just two verses after Isaiah 45, 7, that tells us God creates evil, good and evil. Verse 9, he says, Woe unto him that strives with his maker. Woe unto us when we do that. Let the potsherds uh, strive with potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, Why have you made me? What make you? Or what work? Or the work of your hand? He has no hands. No, I don't think that's what should be going on. And we are the work of his hand, so let's just keep our mouths shut and submit to his will. So I want to repeat those last two verses from chapter 8 and let Isaiah, the Lord's watchman for us, continue with his message from the previous chapter concerning the rebellious and stubbornness that he's placed within us and what his methods are for dealing with the darkness of our rebellious and stubborn minds. I'll just read verses 21 and 22, and then read right into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. They shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry, and shall, it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they'll fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. They shall look upon the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation at the first when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathalie, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walk in darkness have, been, have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Now the spiritual message of Isaiah 9-1 is the truth of the gospel is not received by those who think they already have the truth. That's what it means by... Uh, it appears to those who are in darkness. They, they realize they're in darkness. And that's those who Christ comes to. That's the message there. And uh, here's that message from the mouth of Christ himself. 
in John 9. This is the chapter where Christ heals the man who was born blind from his mother's womb. And they, uh, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he said to him, Do you believe on the Son of God? And he said, uh, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see. They which are in darkness might see. And that they which see might be made blind. Now, we just read over that last part of that verse and don't even realize what we've just read. What we just read was that the Lord himself has blinded this world. He's using Satan to do it. The God of this world has blinded them. But God himself, as we know from Job 1 and 2, sends Satan to do that very thing. And then some of the Pharisees, which were with him, heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. So that's who it is that doesn't get to see the light. That's who it is that the light doesn't come to. The words, when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, refers back to what happened in the northern kingdom of Israel when Pekah was king and had allied himself with King Rezin of Syria, which which is part our previous studies. Uh, they were allied against Ahaz, king of Judah. And here's what happened at that time. All of a type of us, as we, as we uh, tried to make so clear as we were going through it. This is 2 Kings 15, verse 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, uh, king of Syria, Assyria, and took Ijon and Abel Beth Maacah and Genoa, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, and the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. That's the physical history, the destruction of the kingdom of our old man, is the spiritual application of it, and it's not accomplished in one fell swoop. It takes place little by little, as we are given to bear, bear it. But as it takes place, we dig in our heels, you know, we say, we'll build back with better things. Uh, rather than re <clears throat> repent, we just dig in our heels. And the temperature rises and the height of the wa waves rises until we're brought to our wit's end. Uh, King David knew all about how the Lord worked with his people. And he shared his experience with us in Psalms 107. We'll start at verse 24 and read through verse 31. You see the works of the Lord. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the sea. He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits end. Then they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm, storm a calm so the, the waves thereof are still. Then they are glad because they be quiet. So he brings them into their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. 
<clears throat> now, what we're being told is that the best thing that ever happened to Job was the loss of his all that he owned, the loss of all of his children, and being stricken with boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. What we're being told throughout the scriptures is that the best thing that ever happened to any of us is to suffer loss in this age and to be saved, though as by fire. What we're being told here in Isaiah and in Psalm 107 and in 1 Corinthians 3 is that the loss of our wood, hay, and stubble, the king of our old man, is the best thing that will ever happen to any of us. Now, because that is all so contrary to what is taught in this world, I'm going to take the time to list two more verses, uh, sections of Scripture which give us the same message <clears throat> we're being told here in Isaiah 9. Now, those two scriptures are sections of scriptures are 1 Peter 4 and Revelation 14. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 17. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And then these verses in Revelation 14, verses 6 through 12. I saw another angel fly through the midst of heaven, <clears throat> excuse me, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice. Now, these are the three angels of Revelation 14. That's, that's how they're referred to by those that make a study of it. And we know what three means. It's the process of judgment. The gospel is our judgment. Saying with a loud voice, fear God in Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Meaning the understanding of the need of our judgment is a major part of the good news of the gospel. Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And a third angel followed, saying, just keeps on coming with a loud voice. If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead and in his hand. And we just, you know, when you read Revelation, the previous chapter just tells you that everybody does. Small and great, rich and poor, free and bond. Doesn't leave anybody out. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. And what is the message of those three angels? What is this all about? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Right here we've been given the three steps of our judgment and we're told here's the patience of the saints. Here are the they that keep the faith, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We must all live the words of the third angel. We have not received or else we've not received the gospel. Now here's the same message put in different words. Revelation 15, 7 and 8. One of the four beasts gave, me, gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. With all that in mind, let's examine how these verses of Isaiah 9 are treated under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. 
Matthew 4, verse 12 through 17. Now, Jesus heard that John was cast into prison. When Jesus heard John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, if we had gone to Luke's account, he would tell us why Christ left Nazareth. Because right after he was baptized with John, and uh, John was cast into prison, Christ went to Nazareth and preached there, and they wanted to kill him for saying that the gospel had gone to uh, a woman of uh, Tyre and, uh, and to a Syrian uh, captain rather than to anyone in Israel. And he continues that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people sat in darkness and saw great light. And to them who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time began Jesus to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now here we have a very good example of how the writers of the New Testament demonstrate for us that all scripture is Christ-centric. You would never guess or have known that those were words about Christ and his Christ if we weren't told that by the New Testament writers. That's why Christ himself tells us we must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what we need to learn from these verses here in Isaiah 9 is that the light comes not to those who consider themselves already to have light, but it comes only to those who sit in darkness and to them who sit in the region of death. In other words, it comes only to those who have been brought low and have been brought to their wit's end. Now let's consider what happens to those who, to whom this light comes. You have multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before you according to the joy in the harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now here's the uh, how the New King James and almost every other translation on the market translates verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy, joy of the harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Considering what we're speaking of, uh, uh, that we are speaking of those who, to whom the light has come, it follows that the joy would indeed be increased. Now, I know my joy was increased exponentially when I came to know Christ. Christ called those who see his light the meek of the earth. And he says this about such people. Blessed are the meek. And the word blessed means happy, joyous, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, Isaiah himself ver verifies this fact concerning those who have seen the light. In Isaiah 29, verse 19, the meek shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. That is those who are very subject, who are the very subject of the discussion, uh, of this discussion, according to the previous verse. Verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. Now, while it's indisputable that the light of Christ increases outward persecution, it's also undeniable that it also increases inward joy and peace of mind. John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives it, gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
Why would he say that? Because that's what's going to happen. We're going to be troubled and afraid. That great peace comes with the light of Christ and is affirmed for us in the prophecy of Zacharias, the father John, the Baptist, which the Holy Spirit inspired him to tell us. Luke 1, verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, Albert Barnes' commentary explains how the words and not increase the joy were introduced into the King James Version while it was being translated. <clears throat> this is comment on that, that statement. The Masoretes here uh, read in chapter, in, in the margin, <clears throat> you know, there's two Hebrew letters, uh, they're pronounced long, meaning to it, instead of another words pronounced low, not. Eleven of the manuscripts, two of them ancient, had this reading. This reading is followed by the Chaldee paraphrase, the Syriac, and the, and the uh, Arabic. The Septuagint seems to also to have understood it. So also it is with the margin, and so the connection demands, and it is unquestionably the correct reading. You would then read, you have increased it, the joy of the nation. So, I've got over 120 translations on my computer, and 90% of them agree with the Hebrew scholars quoted by Barnes here. Even Tyndale's translation, while retaining the word not, poses this verse as a question. Shall you multiply the people and not increase the joy? They shall rejoice before you, even as men should make merry in the harvest, and as men that have gotten victory when they deal the spoil. Either way, we'd agree with the very next verse with which we will conclude our study this week. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. As in the days of Midian makes it clear that the Lord does increase the joy of all who come to his light. Uh, verse 22, you, and this is Judges 7, verse 22. And the 300 blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Beth Shittah and Zerath, and to the border of Abel-Maholah, yeah, to Tabith. Now, how can we not rejoice when we come to know that the battle is the Lord's, and he's doing our fighting for us? Next week, Lord willing, we'll see more clearly why he has increased the joys for the meek. Uh, as we discover that it is the zeal of the Lord which will perform this. And we're brought to understand that nothing depends on us, even though all things will be accomplished uh, through, through us. This is uh, the verses for next week, verses 5 through 8. Every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon the kingdom to order it and, it and to establish it 
with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the house, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word into Jacob and it has lighted upon Israel. And I wanted to add these two verses in conclusion. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. All things, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. In Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthen me, strengthens me. Now, why would I, Paul, tell us that? Well, because we have to endure all things. That's why. So that's our study for today. I hope you find it encouraging and uplifting and realize that the battle is the Lord's and that he has everything in hand. And every word of this, by the way, I was speaking to myself. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone because we've all got the same experience. One event to all men.